0: Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. This is Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today my guests are um, popular and frequent guests for us, Captains Chris and Elise Caldwell of Captain Chris Yacht Services, And uh, we are eager to talk to them today about dinghies because that's been a popular topic in our members' discussion forum this week. So Chris and Elise have been very kind to join me once again and fill us in on that topic. Before we do get started, I want to take a moment to recognize and thank our admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes & Associates, Dog River Marina, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, United Yacht Sales of the Carolinas, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage all of our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. Chris and Elise, welcome back, and thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for inviting us, and we're sitting outside in sunny, warm Florida. (laughs) Well,
0: that's good to hear that there are sunny, warm places in Florida, because I know a lot of loopers are out there pretty cold these past few days.
1: Thank you for inviting us to talk about dinghies. And a couple of things to think about. A lot of people worry about what kind of boat to buy, and now we've got a million different considerations. What kind of dinghy should you buy? Uh, A lot of issues or a lot of questions are about the materials of construction and the type of boat itself. So two basic types of dinghies. We have what are called soft dinghies or inflatable dinghies, And then the hard dinghies, like a fiberglass dinghy, maybe a walker bay made out of a hard plastic or a Boston whaler made out of fiberglass. The other things to think about are the weight limits. How much does the dinghy weigh? Is it a a light boat, say 75 to 110 pounds, or a heavy boat, 150 to 225 pounds? A lot of this comes into play when you're looking at putting people and groceries in the boat, sizing the amount of horsepower for the outboard motor you want to select, and then how much does the package weigh when you have to lift it and store it aboard aboard your mothership, either on the swim platform, on the aft cabin, or on the roof, on the aft deck. Another big question a lot of people ask, and this is the... um, The Ford and the Chevrolet question, do you buy the cheaper PVC inflatable boat, generally has a five-year warranty, or do you buy the higher quality, more expensive Hypalon inflatable rubber boat that has maybe a 10-year warranty? The key thing that I want everybody to keep in mind is these are not toys. They're expensive balloons. And I call them expensive balloons because it only takes one nail at a dock, one barnacle on a piling, or a couple of little tree stumps or oyster shells as you go up on the shoreline. And regardless of the more expensive high lawn material or the more economical PVC material, they still will or they may have the chance to get a rupture or a tear which brings us to the next issue of a repair kit. Once you start cruising and you get away from home, you have to take a lot of spare parts with you for your diesel engine, for your air conditioners, for your generator, and for your dinghy. A thing that people don't think about is the glues that glue these boats together, the inner tubes, and the patch kits, the glue and the patch kit, all have a half-life it's got a chemical half-life and you can look at the expiration date on the repair kit so you might be buying a, a repair kit that's been sitting on the shelf for one or two years and then you're going to have it on your boat for one or two years so check the expiration date on the glue that's a big deal when you carry a repair kit on board your boat
2: so another thing to that's think about to then that's, that's is if That's something you, I didn't realize. Sure. And, and then when you're thinking about the inflatable dinghies, um, you have to decide what kind of a floor do you want with it. Um, sometimes there's actually the, the rigid inflatable boat, meaning the whole hull is rigid and, and in one piece. But even that's changing. There's a, a new boat out there, a new brand called Frib a folding rigid inflatable boat and it folds up but they also have flatted floors they have sectional plywood and totally inflatable hulls which um, used to be a little bit tipsy when you got into the boat now they're extremely strong and durable it's amazing how the technology has changed so you've got all these these uh, decisions when you're making the choice of having an inflatable or a hard thingy. And the other issue is that how are you going to use it? Are you going to always have a, an engine on it, or do you plan on paddling it or rowing it? Well, the inflatable hulls really don't row very well. They don't go straight very well. So that kind of eliminates that if that's your, your choice, your, your desire to use it. To exercise and, and row, so then you might want to go with a hard dinghy. Well, again, Chris talked briefly about the weight of all of the materials and where are you going to put it on your boat, and so you have to consider how much all of these materials weigh. And some of the harder, uh, the hard boats are heavier. In this last week, some people put up the idea of a wave runner. So that that's a whole nother uh, box of crayons there, the wave runner has got um, an enormous amount of weight compared to the average dinghy. I, I saw someone actually quote 700 pounds for the, the uh, types of wave runners that they were looking at. The other consideration is, again, if it's if you're using it to play, well, then you might not mind getting wet. But if you're using it to go into shore, to get groceries or to bring your laundry that you hope to have dry when you come back, maybe the wave runner isn't the optimal choice for you. And then also with the consideration of how much it weighs, it it really will change the um, the position and the and the the buoyancy of your of your mothership. So you want to really give that a lot of thought and and planning when you're when you're when you're selecting the type of dinghy. Additionally, how many people? Most of us travel with two people. However, there are lots of times where you want to bring your friends along in the dinghy. So we always prefer to have a four-person dinghy. Are you bringing your dogs ashore? Um, usually cats don't like to come ashore in dinghy, but you just never know. And so when you're thinking about a uh, two person or a four-person dinghy really look hard at the, um, at the um, what do you call it the plaque that's on the on the transom of it because some of them are starting to be sold as 3.5 passengers now I don't know about you but half a passenger haven't gotten a real answer to what does that mean including even the Coast Guard they said well how much weight is in the boat that's what they want to look at. So you really want to look at that, that uh, plaque to see how many people can it hold. And then do you want to have seats in it or not? Most of us end up sitting on the um, balloon itself while we're riding along. And in some cases, you definitely will get a little wet if you're in the breeze of the winter time, for instance, where you've got a lot of uh, wave action on the intercoastal. But seats sometimes get in waves. Because where does the person who's driving the boat sit? Do they sit in that middle seat? Do they uh, sit on the on the um, balloon and then you as a passenger sit on the middle seat? So try it out, just like you would try out a car. Well, get in the dinghy in the in the showroom and see how is it going to fit everybody and and how comfortable is it going to be. So now we talked about the possibility of rowing the boat and that would strictly be a, a hard dinghy. But if we're going to choose a dinghy that has an engine, Chris will talk to you about the things that you want to consider when you're when you're looking at your outboard engine.
1: For outboard engines, there's a lot of new technologies available. One is the Torquedo Pure Electric Drive Outboard Motor. It's got a rechargeable battery and you can buy two batteries or three batteries so that you'll never run out of battery power so you can get back to the boat from shore. Incoming outboard motor is gas, but it's not gasoline, it's propane gas. And Lear L-E-H-R, is one of the first people to come out with the propane-powered outboard motor. And then let's talk about the traditional gasoline, two-stroke gasoline and four-stroke gasoline. Uh, The two-stroke gasoline is the type that you have to add oil to it, either a 50-to-1 oil mixture ratio or a 100-to-1 oil mixture ratio. And this is what we've had for the past 50 years or longer where you had to pre-mix oil to go into your two-stroke outboard. The pros and cons of the two-stroke outboards, uh, one thing is they don't make them anymore. Another thing is you do have to add outboard oil, not motor oil. And you have to pre-mix it, and they get a little smoky. But the two-stroke motors have got more pepper to them. There's more snap. They'll get up and go faster than a four-stroke motor will. But the four-stroke motors are the present, not the future. They've been here for the last 15 or 20 years. The four-stroke motors are maybe 20% heavier than traditional two-stroke outboard motor. So the four-stroke motors are heavier, meaning there's a lot more weight on the back of your dinghy, giving you a weight balance or distribution consideration. They are very quiet. They don't consume as much gas as the two-strokes do, so you get more miles per gallon with the four-stroke outboards. And everybody nowadays can work on the four-strokes. Shameful to say, All of the schools teaching the youth of America how to work on outboard motors no longer teach them how to work on two-strokes. So if you go into a shop that's got a lot of young graduate outboard mechanics, they don't know what a two-stroke motor looks like. So that's a thought. Another thing about horsepower, we're talking about outboard motors and dinghies that you can lift on and off of, let's say, a boat up to 45 feet, that neighborhood, your motors will be in the 3 horsepower to 25 horsepower neighborhood, generally less than 9.9 horsepower, giving you an, uh, an idea. The, um, the weight of the motor, the more horsepower, the more weight. Keep that in mind. The more horsepower, the more money it costs you. How fast can your boat go with your regular crew? Our regular crew was Elise, myself, and Fred, a 100 pound yellow Labrador retriever. Now we've got a different dinghy, a different outboard with a 3.5, and um, Fred's gone to heaven. But we now have Bert and Ditto. They're 75 pound dogs. So we figure we can't go fast anyway. So we may as well buy a smaller, cheaper, lightweight 3.5 horsepower outboard motor. And it suits our needs. And we can still do about four knots, three miles an hour, four knots in that neighborhood. And get to shore for shore patrol last thing before our break i want to talk about storing your outboard engine when it's not in use the best thing is to have it vertical as if it were on the dinghy in the water you want your outboard motor to be stored vertical so all of your snowbirds up north if you take it off you winterize it you put it in the garage or the shed store it vertically And anybody else using their boat like we do in Florida, if it's stored on the roof of your boat, the mothership, try to make it as vertical as possible, which is not really possible, but it'll be on a diagonal angle. That's better than nothing, but keep it as vertical as possible so all of the liquids, the gasoline in the carburetor, and the oil in the gears, all will keep everything coated and full of gasoline. Last thing before break, E10, ethanol 10, 10% ethanol gas. Outboard motors don't like it. The newer four strokes have been designed to accept the E10 gas, but now the government's trying to force E15 gas on us, and a lot of people in the Midwest have E85. Do not use E85 in your outboard motor. If you've got a younger outboard motor, you might be able to handle E15, but E10 is the worst or the most percentage of ethanol that I would recommend. And last, when you're in Florida, we have REC gas, R-E-C, recreational gasoline, no ethanol. Costs more money, but your motor runs better.
0: Okay, that's great to know. Great information there, Chris. Uh, We are going to take a break and have a message from one of our sponsors. Uh, When we come back, though, I would like to talk a little bit, and we're going to talk about the safety equipment you need for your dinghy and how and where to stow the dinghy. Um, But I also want to ask you, Chris and Elise, um, kind of what the typical looper would need to look for in a dinghy. And I know there's really no such thing as a typical looper, um, but we've talked about the different kinds of dinghies. Um, And probably the most frequent use of dinghies on the loop comes from loopers who are anchoring out a lot and have a pet. Um, So maybe we can talk about some recommendations you might have if if that's your particular situation. So I'll give you 30 seconds to think about that, and we'll be right back. Curtis Stokes & Associates is a yacht brokerage company that specializes in great loop-capable boats. Curtis Stokes is a supporter of AGLCA at the Admiral level. If you're looking to buy or sell a Great Loop veteran from a trusted and knowledgeable broker, visit the company on the web at curtisstokes.net, email curtisstokes at curtisstokes.net, or call 954-684-0218. We're back on Great Loop Radio. Our guests this week are Captains Elise and Chris Caldwell of Captain Chris Yacht Services, and we are finding out all about dinghies. Uh, before the break, Chris and Elise, I kind of mentioned one very popular use for dinghies on the loop would be someone who plans to anchor out fairly frequently and has a pet that needs to get ashore. So um, if that's the situation, if that were your situation specifically, what kind of a dinghy would you choose? Well,
2: it was our situation, and that's why we did collect the rigid inflatable boat but we would made an um, a addition to it, and we put chaps on it, which are just essentially canvas covers over the balloon itself, which protected the boat to be, I don't know, greater than
1: nine or ten
2: years that we had it. And it was still fine when we sold it very recently. So uh, I think that helps a lot, having that. It's a little more stable when your dogs are jumping in and out, which it happens, they jump out of the dinghy. So um, that's why we collect a rib instead of a hard dinghy. But there are loopers. I know it's hard to believe, but there are loopers out there who don't have pets. But the things that they tend to want to do are visiting other boats, sometimes at the other end of the marina, sometimes they want to visit within an anchorage. They may not even go ashore, but they're just going from boat to boat. So that would be another um, consideration is, how, how often you're going to do that, and then just exploring. Sometimes people like to fish in shallower areas that their, their larger boat can't get into, or they want to just explore some of the um, side channels or side rivers or creeks, again, that the larger boat can't get into. For instance, when you're in Fort Pierce, there is a place called Taylor Creek, and you can go very far up Taylor Creek in your dinghy and just quietly tinker along and and then maybe even shut the engine off and drift a little bit with the, the current in the in the creek and watch the manatee they they come up the river in the winter time and uh, you know huddle together and get warm and, and and forage for their for their meals sometimes you'll see dolphin doing the same thing fishing corralling all the fish together and when you're in the dinghy you're a little bit closer to the action and able to get into tighter areas than you would have in the larger boat. So some people say you absolutely do not need a dinghy. And I would agree. You don't need a dinghy if you're going from marina to marina. But if you want to have more than just the marina experience, a dinghy will really open up your uh, possibilities tremendously. And Definitely agree with that.
0: One other point I wanted to make along that line, Elise, is that um, mooring balls are becoming more popular in some areas on the loop as well. And that's going to be a situation where um, a dinghy would be extremely useful in uh, getting around the area and getting from boat to boat. So something to keep in mind there as well. Um, And, of course, a dinghy is still a boat, so you've got your required safety equipment. Um, and the Mm -hmm. easier it is to get to your dinghy, the more you're going to use it. So um, if you're ready, we can move on to the safety equipment and where to store the dinghy.
2: Sure, sure.
1: Okay, safety equipment. If you drop by the boat store, you can pick up the 20-page pamphlet called Federal Requirements for Vessels, and you can look at the sheets, and there's four different sizes of boats, The smallest size is 16 feet and shorter, which is generally going to be your dinghy. And you can look at all the requirements. You are required to have a PFD, a wearable personal flotation device for each person on board. And here's one of the loopholes. You're not required to have a Type 4 throwable if your boat is shorter than 16 feet. One thing to keep in mind there. Next thing... You're not required to have a fire extinguisher unless your dinghy has a built-in gas tank. So if you have an external gas tank, usually the red tanks with the hoses, you pull them out of the boat and you walk up to the gas pump, fill them, bring them back, put them back in the dinghy. Dinghies like that do not require fire extinguishers. Good idea to have it, not required. Next is a horn. You want to think, why do I need a horn in my dinghy? First of all, it's the law, and if you're putzing around in your dinghy and then this big boat's coming at you, I say a big boat, a 20-foot outboard, (laughs) they're making so much wave action with this bow wave, he cannot hear you hollering and screaming, hey, look out for me. So you need a horn by law. A whistle by law is acceptable. So a Coast Guard-approved whistle which usually comes in your flare kit, is an acceptable audible device. It has to be a whistle or a horn, and that is required by law. And by the way, a stand-up paddleboard also requires a wearable life jacket and a whistle. Even though it's a stand-up paddleboard, Coast Guard requires both of those on a stand-up paddleboard. Another gray area, or a loophole, are navigation lights. If your boat's less than 16 feet, operated in the daytime, you are not required to have your navigation lights, which are your red, your green, and your white lights. But if you're operating that boat at night, or in a heavy rainstorm, or in heavy fog, yes, you are required to have your navigation lights. And before anybody jumps up and shouts, all you need is a single white light that's kind of true, kind of not true. If you read the rules of the road, if you're less than 16 feet operating in international waters, then all you need is a single all-round white light. So international rules are generally more than three miles offshore, except in the Florida Keys, from Longboat to Key all the way down to Key West is international rules. So if you're in the Keys and you're running around in your dinghy less than 16 feet, all you need is one single all round white light only in the Keys. When you come up towards Key Largo, Miami and the rest of the United States, you need your red, your green, and your white. So don't be lazy and think it works everywhere. It only works long Longboat Key to Key West. Anchor, you want an anchor, any kind of anchor, in case your dinghy breaks down, get a rope in your dinghy, which might be your bow rope, so be careful about that. Or if you just want to anchor the dinghy in five, six feet of water and then go snorkeling, You want to have an anchor aboard the boat. If your boat doesn't start, you want to have a paddle. And another thing required by federal law is called a dewatering device. On your mothership, you call it a bilge pump. On your dinghy, you would call it a scooper. So you'd want some kind of a plastic cup. Or at the boat store, they sell an official scoop for dinghies to water out of the dinghy. Two other things we want to think about, state registration, it is a motorized vessel. You are required to register that vessel with the state. Another gray area, it does not have to be the same state that your mothership is registered in. So that's a thing that you'll have to investigate for tax purposes. And last is insurance, your dinghy should be covered under the umbrella of the mother boat. So if you've got a dinghy that's assigned to the mother boat, then your yacht insurance for your 35-foot, your 45-foot, whatever your mother boat is, will also have an umbrella clause to cover your dinghy, but they want to know the dinghy's hull identification number, the outboard horsepower make, model, and serial number. So that's wrapping up some of the technical things on dinghies. And now...
2: I want to just remind people that on our website, CaptainChrisYachtServices.com, we have an article about dinghies with a lot of photos. And this next topic of where to stow it becomes a very um, confusing discussion unless you buy a boat that already has a dinghy and a set up already on it with Javits. So there's options. You have lots of options. And you may have heard some people say, well, you'll use your dinghy the closer it is to the water. Wherever you stow it, the closest you stow it to the water, the more you'll use it. And, you know, it's, it's easier for most of us to not have to climb up onto a roof and, and, and maybe in some cases even start a generator to make the davit work if it's, if it's electrically run and uh, more powerful than your inverter can handle, but there's also hand cranks that you can use. There's block um, and tackle with with mass. Typical um, sailboats have have that sort of a setup, but powerboats often do too. And then there's um, uh, brands called Sea Wise and a variety of other types that will actually slip up the dinghy onto your your transom. So if you're going to choose any of those options of where to stow your dinghy. You're not going to fold it up and put it away every time. You want to think about how easy is it for you to launch the dinghy. When the dinghy is in its stowed position, can you get around it, particularly if it's on your swim platform? Can you access the boat using your swim platform? Or is that off limits now that you've got this big dinghy back there? Um, If you have the davits on your boat, have they been sealed properly so that you're not getting water intrusion through the, through the, the deck of your boat or the roof on your boat? And then earlier in the, in the radio show, we talked about the weight of the dinghy. Here's where it's super important for you to understand. What are the weight limits of your davit? And if you're putting it on a roof, what are the weight limits of your roof? Because you don't want to put something up there that's going to, first of all, be too heavy for the structure that's up there. And secondarily, that's going to actually affect the buoyancy of your boat. If it's too heavy on the top of your boat, will you go from side to side and and possibly um, tip over in an uncomfortable um, direction? So that's where some of these photos on our our website might help you. Under the seminar section, we have actually uh, a title called Dingies. And when you click on it, you'll be able to see all the photographs that we talked about, that new type of folding rigid inflatable boat. And a couple of years ago, we did another talk, blog Talk Radio on dinghy. So you might listen to what we talked about in the past. You might have a few other pointers that we didn't have time for today or, or just you didn't think about. So that's pretty much in a... Um, In a short period of time, what we can talk about with dinghies, if you have questions, you can certainly send us an email or post a question on the forum. It's a great way to see what others have done, how they've used uh, their dinghy or what kind of davits they've used, but hopefully we've been able to open your eyes to some of these newer ideas or concepts and giving you some more uh, opportunities or options for your boat and and how a dinghy could work for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely did.
0: <laughs> I've learned a lot today. Uh, lots of food for thought as people are considering what dinghy they might want to use for the Great Loop. So Chris and Elise Caldwell, we appreciate all of the information. Um, again, you can find more uh, from Chris and Elise Caldwell on their website, which is com. Lots more information on the Great Loop is available at GreatLoop.org. We want to thank everyone for listening. Chris and Elise, thank you for joining us. And we we'll be back next week. Thanks. We'll be back next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising.